What's up and welcome to Sweathead today. I have Megan Averill all the way from about an hour outside of Seattle. Megan runs a consultancy and research firm called The Insight In. She's been doing that for about five years and that's after a decade in the strategy world itself. And what we're going to talk about today, and I find that I love this, I find it really interesting when people have been in the research and strategy world and then turn their skills on the very thing that they do. We're going to talk about a piece of research that Megan has done and continues to do about bro culture in ad agencies and specifically the effect on women. Megan, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Now, the original research and article that you published on your website at the Insight Inn was from 2016, and I'll repeat the title. It's Bro Culture in Ad Agencies and Its Impact on Women. People can Google that to actually read the detail, and there's a lot of very, very chunky detail there. What prompted you to do research about your own industry? Yeah, I mean, it was, they often say in research that the best research questions are formed from lived experience, right? That researchers, you know, and I'm sure strategists, you know, having having that same brain and wanting to know why, we often go through our days looking for little things and then thinking, I wonder why that is, I wonder why that is, has anyone ever researched that topic? And, you know, for me, it was 10 years in advertising agencies, big and small, um, you know, from you know, one of the largest agencies in New York all the way to West Coast agencies that were, you know, less than 20 people. But I found that no matter where I went, there was a pretty pervasive, you know, culture that I thought of as pretty masculine. And, you know, it, it certainly had a, a, an effect, I think, on me as I, you know, matured through the industry and sort of felt the force of that culture and how it impacted me. Um, and, uh, you know, just like anything, you ask your friends right away and, you, you know, you, you sort of start to feel around and a lot of friends had had similar experiences. And I thought, OK, now it's time to see if this is a broader thing. And um, so I approached three percent conference and the principals there to see if they would, you know, kind of partner with me to undertake this research. And then I was able to present it from the three percent stage in 2016, which was really awesome. So. Um, yeah, it really just came, you know, from from me sort of a lived experience in ad agencies. And, you know, specifically, I think the the horror stories, I think, that women had as well and would share, I, you know, there's sort of like the idea of what do, what what do we all say when we've sort of, you know, are really being honest about things we've experienced. Um, and, you know, this sort of happened right around the Me Too era. And suddenly women were sort of sharing some of these really painful stories. And, you know, every woman that I talked to as a part of this had a horror story. I had some, you know, pretty personal impact sort of stories, one that eventually sort of pushed me out of the industry. And I actually resigned over, and this is actually something I haven't talked about yet. I actually resigned over a particularly heinous instance of bro culture and left the ad business for good and never went back. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you're open to it, I want to get into that. But before we do that, just for people who aren't familiar with the 3% conference, the title of the conference actually comes from some research that Dr. Casey Windells conducted at LSU, Louisiana State University. She's since moved to Florida. And the percentage, 3%, based on her research at the time, was the percentage of, I believe, creative director and above roles with women in them. Is that correct? 
That was correct. Yeah, that okay. was the impetus. And I believe that number has ticked to 11% now and that they're the last time they did a figure that it was around 11% because they had brought so much awareness to it. Okay. And then the conference itself, what's it, what's it about? How often and where does it happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kat Gordon is a great person to follow. She's the principal and creator of 3% conference and some of her compatriots have also risen to be thought leaders in that in the area of sort of work-life balance and things like that, like Liza Stromberg and, and folks like that. But she began the conference, boy, I don't even know how many years ago now. And she does it once a year, a, a giant conference. And throughout the year, because that big conference is either in New York or Chicago or sort of a major city and usually has a, a bit of a price tag to it, they do mini cons which is actually how I first met Kat because they're really accessible. They're only a couple hundred bucks and they hold them in smaller cities. And so I was able to take advantage of that. And I strongly recommend those conferences and the content of those conferences because if nothing else, you're sort of in a room with hundreds of other really powerful, awesome women in advertising. And that is a really great feeling to be surrounded by. And they've just done some really great work in the area of highlighting diversity, why it matters, and, you know, getting that conversation to be a conversation that's ha- being had at the holding company level um, mm-hmm. in a way that it just wasn't before. Okay. Uh, if you're comfortable discussing it, are we able to talk about the thing that happened that pushed you out of the industry itself? Yeah. You know, and this is something where as a researcher and as a strategist, you often feel like we share certain attributes with journalists and journalists always hate to be the story, right? Um, they, they, the last thing they want is to be part of the story. And, you know, when I was sort of doing this research, I felt very beholden to sort of having that more objective point of view and making sure that I wasn't using my own biases as I was looking at things that I was, you know, very much wearing an impartial hat as I was doing it because I didn't know if this was a more broadly felt phenomenon. And so I also kept my own sort of personal experiences out of the publishing of this and have kept it out for the last couple of years, partly because I didn't want to make it about that thing. Mm. Um, But I I, I sort of recognize the value in sort of sharing stories and all the women that have shared their stories. And so I am quite comfortable talking about it. And this is actually something that luckily does not verge into the harassments and actual sort of abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse area. So thank goodness I did not experience that. I, I heard from women who had, you know, stories that, that I would call the, the actual horror stories that verge into that territory. But for me, you know, there was a couple of things as I went through my career that you would realize sort of retrospectively probably should be happening in the workplace where like, you know, just things where you're and this isn't this is sort of leading to the, the, the final sort of thought. But, you know, like I remember being in a meeting and having my creative director walk in in his tidy whities into a meeting, you know, just to be funny and things like that. Like things like that that you're going to go like, huh, looking back, like maybe that wasn't <laughs> wasn't something that would happen in finance mm-hmm. or even would happen in tech or something like that, right? And that's, or a, the that's, fact that, uh, that's underpants, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Is yeah, and uh, you know things like you know it being common knowledge in a certain agency that you know a creative director likes to hop off to you know uh, Southeast Asia every often for you know every so often for sex tourism, right? And that just being widely known throughout the agency, or you know um, you know they're the sort of uh, you know account director who sort of 
you know, came by my office in a completely, and then these are all completely different agencies, by the way, came out and said, hey, we participate as a as an office every year. We do an office pool in sort of a tournament style rating of celebrity women and how hot they are. And it was literally set up as like brackets to get all the way to the final of like what celebrity was sort of the most attractive for that year, right? Um, so the, the rating of women's looks, March Madness style, right? And I was sort of invited to participate because I was, you know, considered probably, I would imagine, one of the guys because I was rolling with some bro culture things, maybe enough to get invited to do that. Things like that, that you just sort of look back on and go, you know, those weren't normal per se, and they definitely have an impact, right, over time. And the last one was really sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And, you know, this was actually a situation where work was being presented to the entire agency. And, and, you know, Mark, that that often happens when, you know, work is really stellar or, you know, that once the agency wants to socialize that work because there's something outstanding about it. And in this case, it was late in my career. And, you know, I'd already sort of had the inkling that maybe I wanted to leave the business. So it, it certainly wasn't the only thing that made me decide to go. But it was sort of a, a, a moment of clarity um, that sort of wrapped up a lot of those little things that had happened all those years and sort of wrapped them into a ball. So there was a creative who was called upon to present the work to the agency. Again, about 800 people. I would say that agency probably had about 500 women and also happened to have a, a female lead um, of that agency who introduced the creative to introduce the work. Um, the creative got up and said, hey, here's some work we recently did in a pitch situation. It happened to be for a chocolate bar, you know, and later come to find out by talking to the strategist on the, the particular pitch that, you know, they, they were basically told, the strategist basically told, go find me a stat that supports that men would like peanut butter and chocolate as a combination more than women. So they went and found some index that showed that men were 10% more likely to say oh, I like, you know, chocolate and peanut butter more than women. Fast forward, here we are sitting, you know, in this meeting and it's, oh, you know, we really think that this combination of peanut butter and chocolate, men are more likely to like it. And so we're going to appeal to that. And the whole campaign was basically around this idea of masculinity and are you man enough, right? Sort of like they actually use the name of the candy bar to, to, to supplement in there, um, you know, are you basically man enough to have this candy bar? The creative that they were so excited to show um, was basically female models standing in their underwear. They were, you know, scantily clad and speaking in an accent. So they, well, they were actually speaking in their foreign language. So one of them was, you know, speaking in, you know, what sounded like a Russian, you know, dialect, you know, different things like that. And they were sitting there talking. And basically the gist of the, the ads when they played was it doesn't matter what she's saying because, you know, you should have this candy bar. Um, and, and, and now that we've got your attention. And okay, like I was already like, all right, this is a little boyish, but I expect that from, you know, creative departments sometimes. And this particular creative had a, had a reputation and a nickname that was associated with how he felt about women. But then they went a bit farther and they were like, oh, and then there's this microsite where these will play and you take a test to see how much of a man you are. And at this whole time, the strategist in me is going, I still don't really know how this is attached to peanut butter and chocolate, but sure. So once you take this test to see how much of a man you are and there's a percentage attached to that, your, your victory, if you get over a certain percentage of, of man enough, 
is a 20-minute looped video of these women jumping up and down on a trampoline. And the creative who was presenting it said, and you know, guys, we all know what you're going to do with Mm. women jumping on a trampoline for 20 minutes in a loop in their underwear, right? And these were really supermodels, right? They were really beautiful. And I just, you know, the whole agency sort of was standing there and everyone applauded the work. And I just kind of went like, huh, wow, that was just about everything I needed to know, right? Like here it all was, you know, a decade later after being in advertising and feeling that the world had moved since then and feeling like, you know, that potentially that was not sort of the the reflection of the 50% of women in the room that were standing there and by the way, had strayed so far from the product or even the point by that point as to sort of beg the question of why it was done and shot and approved and all of that in the first place. But, you know, I think it was just really demeaning. I think it felt really awful. Like, you know, I, I, it it literally sort of, I felt like a burn, you know, Mm -hmm. as, as he was presenting it. And again, this guy's, you know, nickname, you know, had to deal with a phallus because this guy was such a jerk. Um, and, and, you know, it was clear to me at that point that not only was that sort of quality about him and, you know, his idea to sort of, I don't know, do you want to use the word objectify? I guess that sort of is appropriate for the situation, objectified women in that way. And, it just made me feel very small. I think it made a lot of the women feel small. I thought saw, saw a lot of them trying to catch my eye because they knew how I felt about, you know, feminism and, and, and things like that. And a lot of them sort of slunk into my office over the next week and a half and just were like, wow, what the heck did we just witness? Like, why was that held up as something that was really quality? Because we felt really crappy when we saw that, you know, happen. Mm-hmm. And I expressed something to a male colleague of mine and, and just, you know, he happened to be a part of that campaign. And I said to something to him, like, you know, that was really bad. It felt really bad. It was not good. It felt really kind of offensive to, to women. And he literally looked at me and said, get over it, you know, get over it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did sort of simmer on that over the weekend and thought, you know, that sort of has always been the directive with that agency culture. I do think to some point, this idea of all of these very bro traits or bro, you know, presentations or bro ways of thinking that many of which are not intentionally created to slight women, but culture has a way of sort of building in, in, a, in an in and out crowd kind of way. Mm. So that eventually women, you know, at least in that room, I think very much felt like they were on the out crowd and the, the solution was to just get over it. Right. And just keep going. And, you know, I, I resigned not too long after that, kind of deciding that even though this was a female-headed agency, it wasn't a place that was very good for women. Mm. That's uh, weird. That's um, It's weird, but what I'm hearing, it seems really to have been quite common. I mean, it definitely was common in a very mainstream way, but it seems so recent for that to have... It, what What is that? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, and, also, I mean, and also the trampoline thing. That's how that TV show, The Man Show, used to end. So right. Not, oh, a, not, yeah. even ori- not even original, just saying. Yeah, it's not. And it didn't feel original at the time. It did feel derivative. It did feel like something from the 80s, you know, or from the Farrah Fawcett days of sort of, you know, advertising where women were sort of literally, you know, it was the wink and a smile objectification that, you know, uh, 
a female celebrity or something would have used to sell a product back then. Yeah. So it, it didn't actually feel like good work either. And I think that was also the thing. It did, fell out of step. It fell out of touch. It certainly felt demeaning to a lot of the women assembled there. But more than that, I don't think it actually did the client a service, did their product a service, or, mm. you know, made it feel like something that you would want to participate in if you were a, you know, a living, breathing human that wasn't sort of, you know, caught up in an era or wistful for an era in which, you know, women were treated that way. Yeah. And it's, uh, there's a book by John Berger called ways of seeing and the era that you're talking about is hundreds and hundreds of years. And part of what he and his co-authors do is they look at, at art from hundreds of years ago and they look at the way that men are portrayed and the way that women are portrayed. And usually the woman or the women in the paintings that these people that John Berger and his, his authors look at are, uh, essentially painted in a way that makes them available to the male viewer. Uh, mm-hmm. And then what's also interesting is they talk about some of the collectors of these paintings ages ago. And that's kind of what it was all about, that they felt that they could own, some of these people felt that they could own the women. And so the women were made to look available to them. And, and so this era is very, very, very long. Have you come across that book? I haven't, but I actually did see an art exhibit um, overseas that actually had two separate wings very deliberately. And they uh, focused on very classical paintings. And I'm saying the word classical without knowledge of what that era actually is. And it probably mm. has an, an era attached to it that I'm missing. But they were, they were old paintings throughout you know, various periods of time, nothing really contemporary. But one wing was all the, the sort of paintings or portraits of men. And one was all the paintings or portraits of women and portrayals of women. And you know, even the, they'd sort of broke down the poses, right? And, and on, on the masculine section, there was going to be, a, you know, hands on hips, one or both. And there were these very powerful triangles in the way that they were, you know, posed and things like that. And when you got over to the women's section, just as you were mentioning, it was, you know, right away obvious that they were wearing less clothes, but there was also sort of these really passive positions. Her eyes were often averted, right? She wasn't able to have her own agency of looking right at the the painter or the audience, right? Um, and all of those things were, you know, pointed out in really academic ways, but ways that were made very physical and tangible by being in the space with so many examples all at once that those painters had never met each other. They'd never participated in anything together they were across different eras but very much had the same sort of you know portrayal of passive like you said available um you know sensualized women where you know the the males were allowed to be powerful and interesting and were doing things and had agency and all those things and that Mm -hmm. was probably the closest I got to seeing that kind of thing in in the art world Okay. Uh, so I want to get into your research and I hope it's not inappropriate just to mention a little personal experience. I never know whether to do this, but allow me to do it. And if it's inappropriate, you let me know to take it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up with a, a single mom and a younger sister and at a young age, uh, and my mom was in her forties and, and later maybe sixties as well. She was uh, sexually molested by a few different people, one of which was at the workplace. And so that just tore our family apart. Um, and so I've been very close to the falling outs of this stuff. However, I also have a feeling that, uh, and also, you know, I was around the, the underground rap and hip hop worlds and various other worlds. And I, I also want to acknowledge that I know that as a, 
as a white man that I have had certain privilege to enter. I've had privilege to enter certain corridors that aren't open to other people. And part of why I like to have these conversations is any questions that I ask, whether they're clumsy or not, it's really, I hope that they come across in, as, in, in a compassionate way because I, I just think we can do better. Like I've sort of seen, I've seen the devastation, I lived with the devastation uh, and it's, there are still deep echoes of it. And so I hope you don't mind me just putting a bit of that, I'm, on, I'm almost tearing up. I hope you don't mind me putting a bit of that context in because it's not about, this is not about my experience, but I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. Hope that's okay. Oh, it's absolutely okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I appreciate the context because I do think, you know, it, it's important that people like yourself who are powerful in the industry and have a name in the industry share their personal experiences, which can involve things that have happened to people you know. I mean, if you know a woman in advertising, you know, now chances are you know someone, you know, just to grab the Bussy Phillips, you know, you know someone who's been sexually harassed or insulted or, you know, um, you know, some has been a victim of harassment in some way. But to know that your mom also went through that, I think, brings really important context to the the listener, um, as well as, you know, to you and, and knowing who you are as you take this conversation forward. Yes. And, and for also, thank you for that. And also, just to be clear, I discussed a few years ago with my mom about talking about that. I don't do it that often. I, d- I did a talk on it and I wrote something about it. So, I'm not just like revealing stuff that we haven't talked about before. We've We've talked about it. Because my mum was in a world where you could really not talk about any of this. And when she actually went for for counselling for some of this, the psychologist suggested that she become a sexual surrogate, which is essentially someone who helps men with sexual misbehaviours and interests. And also I think he tried to chat her up. And so that was kind of... You know, and I heard I heard these stories, you know, as an 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old. So let's get into your research. So the main question that kicks off your research is this. Is advertising agency culture so pro-bro that it ends up becoming anti-woman? Before we get into the four main things that you found, how did you go about this research? Yeah, so, and, and that that premise itself was the research question I devised because I ultimately didn't think that there was anything about, you know, bro culture, as I call it in this piece, that that was formed intentionally, right? Just like anything in culture, which we study as strategists all the time, culture is very incremental. It builds on itself and it reinforces itself. And it often has unintended consequences of who's in and who's out and what's cool and what's not. And that oftentimes isn't a deliberate decision. People aren't out to slight one group or another, but accidentally through the sort of building on of culture and the reinforcing of it become, you know, you know, complicit in that culture or potentially leaving people out without intending to. So, you know, my idea here wasn't to say like, oh yes, you know, like, you know, bro culture is, is anti-woman. I think it was specifically phrased to be like, oh, like, this is something that it may have become so over time without anyone sort of recognizing it. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately the, the idea of bro culture, you know, got written about many, many times after this piece, but I, I'm not sure had been used a ton of times before it. Um, and, and I'm certainly not claiming credit for coining the idea of bro culture. Cause I think again, those, those instances are out there, but I do think that there was this idea of like, how do you put, a a very simple term around something like, you know, bro or pro bro that sort of gets across 
a whole set or feeling around behaviors um, over time that have sort of led to sort of a, a zeitgeist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a, it was a, it was an effort on my part using the words "bro culture" to kind of get across the the advertising version of that. Because I do know that, of course, finance and things like that have bro cultures as well, but it's a different kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something within advertising that felt like the use of bro, as in like bra, you know, um, became really fitting for what advertising particularly was offering. Mm, that's right. I use the word bra a bit more, but it's because my daughter uses it. It's like this weird meme. So when she's not, when she thinks we're saying something silly, she just looks at us and goes, rap. What? <laughs> What is bro culture? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I really saw a couple different manifestations of what I call bro culture. You know, there was sort of the informal bonding part of it, you know, which is, you know, the party, the party aspect, the fraternity sort of, you know, um, bonding happens at social hour, which is happy hour. You know, there's beer in the office. We're the cool kids, you know, we're sort of the kids that, you know, don't have a a dress code and have, you know, friends that are also colleagues, right? And those lines getting really blurry uh, because of the the casual nature of advertising and the social nature of advertising. Um, So that's kind of one aspect of it and and how much advertising prizes that too and how much it's a part of advertising's identity outwardly that we're the cool kids. So even for like a client, you know, to impress that client, you might do things that are very outward signs of, hey, look how cool we are. Look how casual we are. Look, look how much fun we have. We got a keg here in our offices. Don't you wish you had that client, right? So a little bit of it is, is also flaunted, right? It's not just sort of how agencies act internally, but it's also sort of a reminder or a reinforcer in some ways that we're creative or that there's a creative culture here because it's very loose and casual and cool. The other aspect of it was more the modus operandi stuff that happens day to day and how you behave and, and those, those competitive aspects of advertising. And again, some of this is just endemic in the industry. You know, advertising is incredibly competitive. It's really subjective. Um, there's often not clear, you know, uh, reasons that accounts are moved around from one to the other. And so not only are agencies competitive with each other, but, creatives especially and and agency people are put in positions constantly where they're being competitive with each other right um you know that account person might be competing to lead that next new business pitch and show that they've got the stuff to do that and the creative of course is jump balling every single day to try to win you know quality assignments and and to do the best work within that assignment so this idea of a competitive quite brash like you know culture came out you know where people talked about sort of business by yelling. Um, and, and being that you conducted some of your business mark on the East coast of the United States, you would have witnessed that, right. Especially on the East coast. Um, the idea of sort of the more loud you could be with your opinion, the more likely you were to be heard, the more you could cut someone off or speak over them or, you know, yell them out of your office, you know, all of those things were very much talked about. And and when you think about sort of competitive and aggressive and, and loud, these are, attributes that like it or not we've sort of begun to associate with the idea of masculinity or or what it means to behave in a masculine manner not that those things are exclusive to gender but it definitely does create a situation where someone who's and I know you've talked often on this show about being an introvert you know someone who's introverted someone who wants to frankly or feels more sensitive right um 
you know, someone who wants to sort of talk to gain consensus on an issue or someone who's frankly not out just to beat the other guy. Um, you know, we saw a lot of those folks kind of go like, oh, wow. So there's that aspect of bro culture too, which is sort of, you know, the, the bigger an argument you could have about your piece of work would mean maybe that you could result in getting your work made. So I think it's those two sides of the coin. It's the informal, casual party bonding atmosphere. And then this, you know, way that business is actually done, which is, you know, to essentially drive our trucks over each other. Um, in an effort to to win, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And so you took your hypothesis and then you spoke to about 20 women across the country yep. in agencies. Yep. What did you find? There are four main points that we're going to discuss. What was the first thing that you found? Yeah, and just to take a step back on, on without identifying those 20 women, I mean, they're across agency sizes, they were definitely um, across the spectrum. Some were creative women that were more junior. Some are creative women that were more senior. There was account people, media folks, strategists. So it was a little bit of everybody. So even though it was very qualitative in nature, um, you know, we were coast to coast and we felt really good about the fact that we spoke to quite a mix uh, across different generations, all the way up to sort of executive vice presidents or people who were in very partner-oriented or managing partner roles who were, you know, had seen it all and been around forever down to sort of junior copywriters. So we felt strongly that even though it was a qualitative sample, that it was still, you know, representing many of the voices that needed to be represented. Mm-hmm. Just briefly to note out from a research point of view, because I actually get this, uh, this job question every so often. You interviewed about 20 people. Sometimes I get asked, like, how do you know if you've interviewed enough people? So how did you know you interviewed enough people? You know, you just start hearing the same thing over and over again. And that's actually what I say in my researcher role when a client asks me that too. You know, it's like, how do you know you've got a a definitive sample? And it's like, Mm. well, how often did I hear the same things over and over again? So even though these women all had very different experiences and unique stories, when I would ask them just very open-endedly, describe the culture of the agency that you worked at or the culture of ad agencies in general, and they all were hitting the same notes. You know, they all spontaneously, having never spoken to each other in one-on-one, you know, situations with me, would say, it's like a fraternity. It's like, a, you know, and so after you hear that, you know, more than 10 times, you start to go, okay, how many more of these do we need to do? Or can we feel pretty confident that at least directionally, we've hit on something very real? Um, and so that really is the, it's the, it's the lay person's answer, but it's the person I give every, or answer I give even in my research role, which is to say, it, you, you just start hearing the exact same things over and over again from people who've never met. That's funny. Uh, and it's funny also because I asked this very question to Dr. Casey Windells, uh, who did the research that led to the, the name of the 3% conference. And uh, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying this, but I was like, because I was, I was sharing how I research with her students because I'm not a trained researcher. I come from, I've interviewed thousands of people. It's, it's more from, I just like hearing stories. And then over time I was intimidated by all the serious researchers and then realized, hang on, I think I can develop my own way here. I think that that's also okay. And I said to her, what, how many people is enough? Is it 20? And it, I think she was like, nah. and I said 50. And it was like, yeah, like, it's, I think your answer is probably an accurate, <laughs> an accurate yeah. answer. Okay. What did you find? First thing. Yeah. So the four big findings, you know, were really 
they build on each other. You know, the first being that, you know, ad agency culture is a very definable force. It's a strong force. It was a zeitgeist that people could feel on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, they, they definitely could not just feel it, but could feel that they were often outside of it if, as women. Um, and, and so it's kind of interesting that there's sort of, you know, discrimination and all these things that you could call as just sort of like out and out, you know, hellish stuff that happens to people. But this day-to-day insidious sort of reminder that like these jokes are about you or these jokes aren't for you or, you know, this is the place for for everybody who's in favor and, and that's the place for you was sort of felt on a more um, guttural level. Mm. And I think those insidious sort of day-to-day things can really build up in your system over time without you knowing that. And that was why I had a big question mark myself. Personally, looking back, I could see things, but day-to-day, when you're in a culture and you live in a culture full-time, can you really see it? And so there was just a big question for me at all to know, can people you know, in advertising sort of see or feel a culture about that, that feels different than other places. Mm. Um, and the answer was, was yes. So that was really like finding number one that had to be there in order for everything else to fall into place is, is there a defined culture and does it feel pervasive? And the answer was yes. Right. And, and and also as part of what you're saying there, could you talk about insidiousness, which to me means that it's everywhere, but you don't always know it's everywhere and that Mm -hmm. might or might not add, it might not, might, might or might not be in conflict with the word defined as in defined culture, because what I thought I was hearing is that, you know, you might interview somebody about what they're seeing and, and all, they could say, oh, it's just a whole bunch of stuff. And they're not sure how serious to take the whole bunch of stuff. But when you might talk to somebody about the issues and they add up the stuff, you're like, that's a lot of stuff. Is that a little yeah. bit of what was going on? Because that's also what you I know, your earlier story before you got into the big story that seemed to be the, the narrative there too. Yeah, I think for me, it very much like was it took a lot of time for those things to build up and become acknowledged. Of course, culture external culture was changing at the same time. And, you know, the older you get sort of the less BS you're willing to take and the more you sort of recognize your own voice. And I know that's something you've talked about again in other podcasts of like recognizing your own voice and knowing what kind of work you want to do and what kind of work you don't want to do and what's okay to you and where you feel like you're compromising. So the older I got, I was also very blessed to sort of grow in my own knowledge of, of, you know, not compromising my principles to participate in stuff anymore. Because culture is very, you know, we, we all have to participate in it. If you're in an ad agency, you're, you're automatically, you know, a part of the club. And, you know, so therefore you sort of end up furthering it, whether you intend to or not, because if you're playing the game, you know, and everybody's got politics in every single uh, business, every single, you know, people business has politics or particular political aspects. But this idea of sort of participating in the bro culture and participating in ad agency culture seemed to be very required, not just to sort of get promoted and things that you would normally think of, but to get the kind of assignments or to get the kind of recognition for your work and also the kind of plaudits that you would want from an informal standpoint in order to sort of stay in the game and not just be sort of sent to the outs, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, sort of fitting in and, and being a fit seemed to also be a bigger deal in advertising than other 
areas of, mm. of people's employment. I think the other thing to answer your question, you know, beyond myself was I did speak to women that had left advertising and were more on their own as well as women who were still in it. And, you know, to answer the question about how insidious and does, is it recognized, you know, women who had left were much more easily able to say, oh my gosh, here's exactly how it felt. This is exactly me putting my finger on it and telling you that it felt awful and that I was compromising myself and it didn't feel good. And then there came a moment where I couldn't do it anymore, right? And then mm -hmm. I was just fed up and I felt it was too much. The women who were still in the business were very much recognizing as they talked to me how how bad, and, and you know, I'm going to use that word, just how bad some of that buildup was. So I could hear a progression as I was talking to the women who were still in the business of sort of recognizing it throughout the conversation that when being asked to talk about these things and name those things and just, you know, recognizing and, and their own voices as they were revealing things that had happened to them, I think they were much more likely to go like, oh, this sounds really bad, but, mm. or say, ooh, I guess I never really thought about it this way, but now that I'm saying it, I, I guess I did that, right? Mm -hmm. I, or I guess I participated in that. So I think the idea that was occurring to some of those women, and, and you can hear them in some of the quotes, you know, in the, in the page, some of them said, wow, maybe I got promoted because I didn't speak up. Mm -hmm. Or things like, oh, wow, I guess I actually did used to, I can't even believe I'm going to use this word, but I actually did flirt with creatives to kind of get what I needed out of them. You know, and you can almost feel in the quotes, like the halting hesitation that some women felt as they kind of came to terms with this pervasive culture and how they behaved within it. Because of course, if you're still in it, it's much easier to, or it's much harder to sort of look back on it and say, but that was then and this is now. Right. And so some of the behaviors might be things that you've pointed out so far, nicknames, uh, strange provocative clothing, whether you're invited or not invited to certain meetings, how you're supposed to behave in those meetings, side comments, jokes. Um, what, what else are some of those little behaviors that when you start to lay them out are like, whoa, okay. You know, little things like, you know, women recognizing that actually when I interviewed for that job, you know, that CEO that was interviewing me was looking me up and down the whole time. And I didn't even think about it at the time. I was just trying to sort of get through the interview, right? You know, so sometimes it's things like that as well. Um, you know, there was also stories that people talked about where they were specifically chosen, you know, especially I, I felt particularly for my, the women that I spoke to who were in the, 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 the lower levels of creative, um, I felt like they definitely had the most, baggage um, because they were sort of really in that three to now 11% uh, and, and very young to boot up against some very experienced men who very much had a different culture around ad agencies when they were, they were coming up. And so they were often very visibly flirted with or, you know, you know, propositioned. Um, and again, this is all in 2016 that I was doing these interviews. So it, it's nothing, that doesn't still continue despite, you know, everything that's happened, you know, but it was also like, what were the jokes? Like to your point, you know, the jokes in the ads, but then, you know, there was also sort of the way that people bonded. Mm. I talked about the happy hours and things like that with like flip cup or like how drunk can we get? Or, you know, I was at an agency once where a bunch of creatives got together and they were like, it's creatives only, it's creative guys only. And they made Don Draper business cards, literally. 
and went out for steaks and like dressed up and went out in suits and smoked cigars and stuff and had this Don Draper night, which, you know, I can't imagine a female creative in the agency, had there been any, would have been invited to, not to mention, you know, does that mean you're wistful? Like, you know, the, the, the message that sends is that you're a little bit wistful for the days where you could just have sex with your client on the table, right? <laughs> or, you know, um, you know, have your way with that young female copywriter or be that guy who everybody wanted to bone, even though you were, you know, um, at work, right? I mean, like, there is a little bit of, you know, that salacious aspect of Don Draper that if you were just sort of going like, wow, so here's a bonding event as a, as a female that, A, I don't even feel I want to participate in, and B, if I, if I did, I certainly would be, you know, influencing the way this thing, draw, you know, drew out because there certainly was a, a, a zeitgeist around Don Draper that, you know, like it or not, brings a lot of feelings about women along with it. And again, I don't think they were trying to be jerks. I don't think they were trying to say this is, this is for us. This is for the in crowd. But I say that as one example of sort of this idea of how bonding it happens, you know, in, in a couple creative departments, I would know that all the guys used to get together and play video games at so-and-so's house until like late in the night. And that's how they would bond. And in the meantime, as a strategist, you want to be close to your creatives. You want to have a relationship with your creatives and you know that, you know, that's a dude only sort of experience. And even though I could play a pretty mean video game at that stage of my life, I was not going to be welcome. I was not going to be invited. And certainly the people who were, and there was a couple of male strategists who were, were going to have a closer relationship with their creative teams because they were just able to spend that informal time. So mm. I do think a lot of that idea of in and out, which I talk about a lot in that first finding point of this sort of in crowd versus out crowd has to do with the fact that a lot of advertising happens through relationships. And a lot of those relationships happen in that informal, casual off time, not just in the, the nine to five, you know, like nobody in, you know, finance is going out for maybe more than one drink. Although I do know finance has its stories as well. Um, you know, my clients might have a once quarterly, you know, mixer at the office where they kind of have a couple beers and then go home. But, you know, advertising is very different. And this idea of, of, you know, the cool kids is really there. Mm, I'm getting a few stories flashing back. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, as you're going through these things, a lot of faces, uh, there's a few faces popping up. What's the second point? Yeah, I mean, the the second point is this fraternity tailgate frat house, you know, idea of how did you describe culture? And again, I asked sort of women in a very open-ended manner, just said, how would you describe ad agency culture for someone who'd never been in the agency, had never worked there, had never been in one. And, you know, I had a little exercise and, you know, we often do this exercise. It's like strategy 101 to have the celebrity exercise. And so right away, they all, I said, sort of name an analogous place to ad agencies. And they said, frat house, college tailgate, you know, you know, kegerator, basement, man cave. And then I said, okay, now pick a person off of this, you know, list that really represents the personality of who fits in best to that culture. And it was always Seth Rogen, right? Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen. And the reasons people gave just felt really spot on to me as I had, you know, again, I was trying to remain objective, but as they were talking, I was like, oh yeah, I know that guy, you know, in advertising, who's a bit funny, but also a bit juvenile, who's 
a bit immature, but in a way that endears him to others, right? Um, you know, that kind of Seth Rogen character he plays over and over and over again, right? It's like, you know, he's kind of a pig, but he's sort of endearing. And then he's able to like, you know, be sensitive enough to like get with the really hot girl, right? Um, you know, it seems like mm-hmm. he's still playing that role. I think he just came out with a new movie that, you know, does much the same. So, you know, this idea of sort of this boorish, you know, dude who doesn't really sort of, I guess the way he he operates is to be sort of childlike, right, um, in the world, right? And this idea of, you know, he's going to get loaded and let his hair down and be super fun and be the life of the party, and yet he's also going to be magnanimous enough to make up for the fact that he's kind of a jerk. Mm. Okay, processing. Uh, now the third takeaway from the research. And just to put one more fine point yeah. on that, you know, it was often that party culture that really underscored this idea of fraternity. It's the reason people said it, you know, this idea of sort of, as I mentioned, going out for, for drinks and things like that. But I think it was often also like, you know, how much you could drink was also a measure of how cool you were in the agency, which again, feels like a, feels like a, a moment from college that just transposes into real life. If you're in advertising somehow, like, you know, women literally said like, Oh yeah. Like I remember saying casually in front of my creative director that I dropped acid and he was like, Oh my gosh, I respect you so much more now or something like that. You know, where she said, I could literally see that I went up in his eyes. Right. He instantly started thinking, Oh, you're cooler now than you were two seconds ago. And she's like, why? You know what I mean? Like, what was it about that? Um, and I remember asking, you know, a couple people, you know, like, well, was there an expectation that you would go the distance, that you would participate in this, you know, party culture, be it drinking or drugs or whatever, as far as it could go? And, you know, one of my favorite quotes was somebody who said like, oh, yeah, you're not going to be standing there. You're going to be the one doing the funnel, right? You, you have to be the one doing the funnel as a way to sort of keep your cool. You know, you are, you are that person that, especially as a woman, I think people then felt they needed to go further to participate in that, to feel like they were one of the cool chicks, that they were one of the cool women who could hang, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's those, you know, if you're familiar with like Amy Schumer and her sketches, she has that one, which is like the cool chick, like the chick who can hang. And it's like, you know, this idea of guys really just wanting another guy, but who's a girl um, to be their girlfriend or significant other. Um, and I feel like there's a little bit of that that women pick up on in these kind of bro cultures where it's like, okay, not only do I need to hang to prove I can hang even more, but I need to prove I'm not going to be someone who takes away from or detracts from or pours water on everybody's fire. I want to be part of the fun, not taking away from that fun. Okay. Okay. It's interesting to hear this because some of this is definitely US specific behavior, Mm -hmm. but there are fraternity like behaviors in many parts of the world, especially in advertising. I mean, I used to, look, I used to hear a lot about cocaine in Sydney. I've never done it, but stories of Christmas parties where 20 grand of cocaine would get thrown on the table and people are having at it. Um, apparently yeah. Sydney is really into that. And I'm sure there are people listening who are really into that. I've not done it, whatever you're into. But I think what we're, what you're talking about really is how doing that determines whether you're in and out, whether you're taken seriously uh, and to, to what degree that might affect the opportunities that you are able to access through your job later on. 
that that's the idea is like the wild and crazy party. Like if you're in advertising for more than five minutes and you don't hear about last year's Christmas party, like you're doing something wrong. Right. I remember in my very first job at 22, in one of my first few months at work, I remember hearing about some legendary party and probably some upfront or something where something legendary happened to one of the people there. And, you know, those are, those are the currency. That's the social currency. That's what's talked about in that particular culture. Again, and culture is made of what is discussed and what is considered cool. And Mm. you're right. Those epic parties, it's just like, that's part of what's in the water and part of the water you drink, you know, as like, Oh, that's, that's how people, you know, when they're killing time, they they tell epic stories. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I had friends that talked about shoots and how they would go on shoots and after shoots, this would be time for the creatives after they've been working all day to sort of drink into the night with the directors or the actors. And they would always turn into a conversation of Mary Berry right? Who, who you work, who work with that you would marry, bury, or have sex with. But it's like, you know, you know, that again was something that was happening incredibly contemporarily to about the time I left the industry. So it's not necessarily, you know, um, you know, fraternity, I hear you loud and clear, but I also know that when I was in Australia, the word legend was one I heard all the time, right? Mm. Oh, that's legend. You know, you're a legend. Um, legend, 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 yeah, yeah, that had to do with your, your sometimes sexual prowess or how much you could drink or whatever it was. So even if it's not like fraternity based, it's that idea of sort of like who can go the hardest, who's the most fun, who's the coolest guy. Right. Yeah. I I think there was an infamous story about the, maybe a UK equivalent to the Mary, Berry example, which is marry Chuck or F word. Uh, yeah. and, and I think it got put into a farewell email sent to everybody in the agency. Uh, and Ooh. yeah, maybe, maybe not so good. And then apparently not that uncommon. I don't know if it's, if the, um, I don't know if it's common to put it in the email or if it's just people, something that people do in the pubs over there a bit. I've, I've heard of it and seen it a bit. It's, uh, I don't know. I've not done that. I just, I don't know. I've been asked. I've not, it's not really, no, I don't know. Okay, let's do... It's not your thing, yeah. No, it's not my thing. It's cool. Not judging it. I'm flawed in other ways. Um, the, other, the other one I, I've often heard about is uh, everyone going to the strip club. And I, honestly, I just, I've yeah. never done it. I'm not judging it. I just don't want to stand in a room of that. I, like, I don't, what is that? I don't need it. And then, uh, and I've got uh, friends who, female friends who are pretty senior and they're like, yeah, I just used to go and just have to pay the bill, pay the check. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was very true of women I talked to even again in 2016 ahead of this study, there were women saying like, yep, that's, that's still done. Like that's, it wasn't just the women who are more senior in their careers that were like, yeah, like that's where we go. And again, in this idea of how far will you go to hang if a, if a woman agreed to go to the strip club, suddenly she was that much closer to legend, right? She was that much closer to cool because, oh, she's one of the cool ones that doesn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so it almost could sort of, you know, by participating, becoming complicit in those behaviors as women, that slight women, like, how is it that that creates more cool? Like, Mm -hmm. why does that create more cool? Yeah. And and I think that, I think the way that I see some of these topics and not the extreme versions of these topics, but some of these topics, which is to say not disgusting, aggressive bullying and abuse and physical stuff. But some of what some people might think are lighter topics is like whatever you're into, but don't try to inflict it on other people and connect it to whether they're successful in their jobs or not. Is that an okay way to 
That's kind of how yeah. I see some of these lighter topics. Which, yeah, um, and it's, it's certainly like how is business done informally and formally? You know, that's what makes culture in, in a workplace. And ultimately, because advertising is the way it is, the informal and formal of how business is done often has that, you know, these behaviors attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people are getting better about recognizing when, you know, when somebody's work is just objectively good on its own versus when they just want to be rewarded for, you know, oh, this person's cool or I like this person's style or their attitude, right? I think that used to be a more acceptable way to give plum assignments and give raises and promotions. Let's face it, it's always going to be a part of things, but I think people are sort of recognizing, hopefully lately, post Me Too, post some of these things that it's you, you you have to sort of have some more objectivity than just like, I like that guy. So let's invite him to be in the pitch, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, because that's just what perpetuated the idea that 97% of men were creatives at some point, you know, it was mm-hmm. not like, oh, she's cool. It was, oh, he's cool. Mm-hmm. I think the third point sort of gets to some of that in and out for sure, which was the idea that who sets the culture. And this actually was one of the points that I heard the most feedback on, you know, I had, you know, people read this article all over the world. It was really flattering. People wrote to say that this was spot on for them. This idea of creatives really set the, the cultural tone for the agency, particularly senior creatives, which is sort of a no-brainer in, in some respect. But again, I wanted to feel it out and hear from people across the spectrum. And, you know, when you really think about the workings of advertising, the mechanics of it, this makes a ton of sense, right? Because creatives make the work. And ultimately, everyone else is either shepherding the work, selling the work, or placing the work, right, in media um, or in traffic. You know, the the creatives are really the ones that have all the power because they're the ones that make the thing the agency sells. And so they really were the arbiters of the culture. Of course, they are also caught up in having to be the coolest kids in the room. I mean, I don't necessarily, you know, think that they always probably enjoy that either, but there is some culture of cool that comes with being a creative that's probably exhausting if you're a creative person to some degree to keep up. Um, You know, you have to wear the sort of, you know, outrageous garments or the funny hats or the interesting glasses and you have to, you know, keep up with interesting art or movies or things like that in order to sort of, you know, have the mystique, you know, that you're a creative, good, you know, good, creative and interesting person. But I think some of those things were also not just, oh, here's the personal trappings that show I'm a creative person, but also here's the behaviors that therefore in my position of authority, because I am the one that makes the work, I can sort of get away with more, right? Mm -hmm. I can throw my elbows around a little bit to get what I want. And that power sort of accruing is something that creatives very much feel felt in advertising and and used. Um, And so I call them sort of the arbiters of the culture, the ones that everybody looks to, not just to what's cool, but what's permissible within the culture because they were the ones to be most likely to push the limits. And then I call the sort of C-suite the enablers because ultimately, you know, the, 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 the powerful um, are the ones that people look to to know, again, what's acceptable, what's approved of, what is going to get me that promotion or that raise from that person that's above me. You know, you're looking ahead. And so people often look at the C-suite to model that behavior, um, whether they ever interact with them personally or not. I mean, this can be a C-suite in a giant organization, but the idea is that they're looking at them to say, ah, 
they're the ones that when they laugh at a joke, everyone else is going to laugh, right? But if they don't laugh at a joke, no one else is going to laugh. Um, and I think that is very much, you know, something that I heard over and over and over again from all of the women was that, you know, you have all the men in this creative discipline. They know they have all the power. They're throwing it around. And then you have the people who are often very close to them, right? The sea the levels often handpick their creatives. They're often just as beholden. Their paychecks are often as beholden to the creatives as anyone else's, right? And so this idea of, well, that's my magic creative. He's the, the golden child. He's going to help me win my next pitch or, you know, maintain that piece of business because he does such a good job. And so that idea of sort of, well, you know, he's sort of a pig or he's sort of a jerk or the things he says are sort of, you know, a little bit, you know, juvenile or teenager-ish, but we're going to let it go because, you know, ultimately we need them, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of like, you can't challenge a creative person, you know, the women often talked about like, you know, in a room, if the creative thinks it's funny and he's laughing, you're laughing because, you know, otherwise you're, you're sort of on the outs. Um, and creatives especially are in a position, you know, when as the arbiters of culture and, and the, the roles that they occupy as creative directors to give those assignments. So thinking again, like there's no assignment bingo machine in advertising where, you know, all the assignments go in and there's a random draw of numbers to see who gets them. It's this person would be great for that. This person would be really the perfect to go on this pitch or to go on this Nike, you know, business or this other plum piece of business, right? This one everyone wants to work on. And, you know, so because of that hand selection aspect of it, you know, if you weren't sort of doing everything you could to be cool to your creative director and show that you were the creative genius you needed, then you weren't going to get those assignments. So to your point, you know, does it end up affecting more than just women who feel sort of a little disenfranchised by the whole thing, but does it actually impact their careers? Yes. I mean, mm. there were many senior creative women who had just left the industry just kind of said, you know what? I can do better on my own. I can do better freelance. I can actually have my stuff win on its merit. Um, I don't have to put up with that sort of less talented hack that's sitting next to me and getting promoted ahead of me. Right. I mean, uh, I sort of feel for that whole generation of creatives before this this last generation now because I do feel like every single one of them felt like they were overlooked constantly for those things because they just weren't quite, you know, they just weren't quite as in crowd as um, as some of the guys. You know, they just weren't one of the guys. Okay. Uh, and then the last point, and as you explain this last point, I'd love to hear you talk about the work wife, work mistress, and work mother. Yeah. So this one was interesting because, you know, here were these women, and I especially expected women who'd been in the business forever, who had the, the most senior titles to be like, yeah, like, of course I'm a part of ad agency culture, just in general, right? Not just sort of like bro culture, but ad agency culture. And, you know, it didn't matter what level women were. It didn't matter where they sort of fell in the spectrum, but they they were often thinking of themselves as like, oh yeah, there's, there's ad agency culture and then there's me, right? I'm, I'm sort of out. I'm not, I'm not one of the cool kids. I'm not in, which is sort of wild if you think about it because there's definitely, you know, influence that comes with heavy titles and positions. So you would think that those women would feel like they had a, a role to play in the, in the culture of it. But definitely they kind of felt like, nope, we're just here to facilitate the, the work for 
know, creative or we're here to facilitate the work for others. And ultimately, we're never a part of the cultural zeitgeist. So the three roles that women talked about, um, depending on their age and also sort of what role they played within the agency. And this goes back to talking about the fact that creatives are mostly men, media, accounts, strategy, probably tips the scales a little bit more female. Um, and this idea of a service-oriented aspect of those. They're, they're, all of those roles are somehow in service of the creative. And because of that, you know, the idea of work spouses, like we're actually the ones that are facilitating all the stuff to get the creatives to do what they need to do to, you know, get the work to the client on time, right? So it's sort of that idea of we're working in tandem with them, but not equally to them. They're the ones that are sort of doing the big stuff and we're the ones that are shepherding it like a spouse. For the, the women who were older, it was this idea of work mother. You know, they were like, okay, let's face it. These guys look at me, these younger guys, and I look like their mom. And so, you know, to, to them, I'm just sort of, you know, the mom that's checking in and saying, hey, are you done with that yet? Can we get this to the client? Um, not necessarily because of her age or because of her... Uh, you know, appearance or whatever considered somebody that's a cool girl, but instead is sort of more of a matronly figure because of her age, right? Okay, you know, she'll help me, she'll facilitate my, you know, my my discipline or what I need, and maybe she'll even care for me a little bit. There was oftentimes that, you know, you know, these these women talked about sort of having that that look to them or that expectation of them that they would clean up after them quite physically or literally mm. or even just sort of emotionally. Mm. Um, the one that was most disturbing though, was the idea of work mistress. And I think this one actually even resonated with me. Like I, I, as I was doing this, I was like, Oh my goodness. I think even I've done that. But this idea of flattery, you know, if you're going to play the game with an, with a, the creative that has a certain ego, how do you stroke that ego to get the, the kind of work that you need out of them? Right. Because ultimately, you know, this is the big secret of advertising that clients often don't know, which is just, Creatives will only give you good stuff and, and really want to work on your stuff if they want to work on it, right? Um, it's all about motivating them or else you get sort of the CISO principle. So the idea of, you know, these guys sort of going like, I don't care about this assignment could ruin the assignment. So, you know, a, a lot of women in very different roles, some in the strategy role like myself or others would say, yeah, like we used to kind of coax it out of them. And the way we did that was sort of like to play this role that they loved of someone who was sassy and smart and would not take their stuff, but like, you know, just enough to sort of put them in their place, but also, you know, get what you need out of them with a wink and a smile. And, um, you know, there was plenty of times that, as I even searched my brain where I went back and I was like, darn it. Like I can think of times that I was like, you know, you, you're so good at this kind of assignment. You know, you've just done so well with this kind of thing in the past that I think it'll be really a great project for you to work on that kind of thing. I mean, of course you can flatter anyone anywhere as part of, again, a political structure. So it's not necessarily unique to advertising. The part that is unique to advertising is that creatives are the only ones and preponderantly male that, can get work done and it's the women who are coaxing it out of them. Mm. Ooh, I mean, it's, uh, for people who haven't come across the article or the research before, you can find it if you Google grow culture in ad agencies and the impact on women, or you can go to the insight in inn.com for somebody who identifies in a very maybe painful way or a, a newly painful way with some of what we've talking about today. I don't know if you've got any answers, but what, what do you think they can do? 
Yeah, this is sort of the trick of it. And and ultimately, I think the that business is getting smarter about understanding culture and understanding what is a healthy culture for everyone and what is, you know, an unhealthy culture. And that can include the same thing for people of color and, and, and things like that. Like, how do you create a culture that's actually inclusive, not just by definition, but, you know, in actuality? And so I think there's a lot of focus on like cultural change experts now who actually know how to go in and undo some of the, the thorns and the damage and the, the brokenness that have been there before and actually heal a place from the inside out. And I think that is fascinating. Like if I was the leader of any size organization, cause I've often seen broken cultures, even at small organizations, I would be like, let me get that person to sort of actually figure out what's going on here and, and how to sort of structurally change it. You know, on on my best day, I would hope that every single ad agency is hiring one of those firms to really understand, like, what is it that's particular? If this is true about ad agency culture in general, there are going to be things that are true to them, things that aren't true to their agency culture. And how do you find out, you know, if you're so being so pro-bro that you're being anti-woman, you know, and then how do you structurally change that? I mean, Mullen... And, and some of those have just gone the route of just placing females in leadership positions at an extraordinary rate, right? And, and they've been written up as success stories, and I think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, what we know about diversity and inclusion says that there's a tipping point of about 25% where, you know, you, 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 the, the majority starts sort of respecting the, the, the rights of the minority and in a more day-to-day cultural way. Mm. Um, so that's that's a great aim. Um, I, I, I tell my story I did at the beginning partly because that was a female-headed agency that had plenty of women in executive positions, but that didn't necessarily make it a healthy culture for women to be in. Because ultimately, if you're sort of a woman, I think there's some call to action for you too in this research, which is how much are you participating in furthering being complicit in a bro-like culture? And where can you, even if you are still in the industry, like where can you use whatever influence you have to curtail it, right? To sort of, you know, stop being so complicit to pull back a little bit, hopefully not to the detriment of your career, hopefully not in a way that would influence your your actual work in a negative way. But enough to sort of tap the brakes a little bit in a way that I think hasn't really been always done before because of fear of retribution. I think if you're a guy in advertising and you're seeing this, I think, you know, the, the, what I finished the article with is just check yourself, you know, like, is there something that happens when you walk in the ad agency doors where you start behaving in a way that you behave with your buddies at the bar, you know, and should that be the same way you conduct yourself at work? Is there things that you're saying at work that you wouldn't say in front of your son or daughter or wife or girlfriend or significant other, you know, is there sort of this idea of what can be sort of allowable or, you know, what sort of is, is the way that people casually bond in advertising and how would you fix that? So if I was in a a role in an agency still, I think I would very much be looking at the social calendar, right? That the agency rolls out once a year and say like, wow, how many of these have to do with just straight up drinking, like booze cruises, you know, how many of those are, you know, Christmas parties with just unlimited drinking that happen at night. And, you know, like, is there a way to sort of work to be like, wow, can we do something else with our time? Can we do something else other than drink to bond? And I think, you know, the, the other 
aspect of this that I've been looking at since is talking to HR folks within advertising about their take on all this and their take on how agencies are onboarding me too. And so that's still in the works. But I've spoken to about seven to 10 HR folks in ad agencies to this point. And it sort of seems like from what I'm hearing, and this is, this is sort of an ears up moment, I think, for me, it seems to be that I'm hearing that like, okay, cool, Me Too is going to sweep things pretty clear and we're really glad it's happened. And now if we can just get enough people from a diversity standpoint into, into solid high up roles within advertising, within our agency, right, from an HR perspective, we'll heal a lot of these cultural wounds. And I, what I heard a little bit was this idea that it's a panacea that like, okay, once we get to a magic number or once we get to the point where we have more people of color or more women in these, you know, really important roles that the culture will sort of fix itself or mend itself. And, you know, I'm, I'm only a little concerned about that because it didn't seem like there was a lot of urgency and it didn't seem like there was a lot of idea that there is a, a specific cultural issue that needs to be addressed within the inner workings of how the agency formally and informally does business, right? So I think that culture piece gets left behind a lot when we talk about, you know, women and advertising and toxicity and things like that. Not only are we more likely to talk about out-and-out harassment or some of the, the bears, the people who have been kicked out of the industry because of bad behavior, but I think also it's this idea of like, okay, so diversity inclusion is the answer. And like, yes, to some degree, like I said, we all know that that will actually, you know, achieve a great result once it happens. But in the meantime, my thought is, wow, there's probably hundreds of women who are teetering on the brink of leaving this business. And in fact, you know, I did talk to a, a younger person who had interned, right, in advertising and she invited me out for coffee. And so I went out with her, you know, to, to talk to her about her you know, concerns about the industry, excitement about the industry. And she was like, you know, I did intern at a place and as a young person of color, like I was in a meeting and, you know, there was a joke in an ad that I found a literal, you know, culturally insensitive. And I said something about it and it was really awkward and they didn't seem that open to my feedback and it wasn't changed. And it sort of seemed like people thought it was more an annoyance that I spoke up. She was like, and later, you know, I wasn't asked back you know, to, to a full-time role, even though sort of a, a, a you know, a, a compatriot of mine who is a white man and, you know, wasn't as qualified out of school and didn't have as good of grades and wasn't as much of a go-getter, he was asked back and I wasn't. She was like, and I often wonder if it's because I spoke up. And I, I sort of look at people like her and I think she may not go in ever, right? She, here she is at, you know, 22, 23, whatever she is, and she may never enter the industry to begin with. So as much as my heart hurts for the women who, frankly, 40 and up and beyond and who had experiences much worse than I did, my heart hurts for them because they either left the industry or had to put up with more than the rest of us. Then there was sort of my generation, I'm in my mid thirties of women who sort of like put up with some stuff, but still had an overriding sense of fairness. But you know, ultimately still were let down by the game. And then I see these like 20 somethings and I'm like, what if they never even get in? Like how many people does advertising lose a day that are women or people of color because they just sort of feel like they can't have a voice or that these cultures of ad agencies don't represent them? Uh, Megan, 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 uh, as you do more research, let's speak again, because I know you're conducting additional research and adding more context to what you've already done. I really appreciate you sharing everything that you've 
found so far. Where are you most active on the internet day by day? I tweet the most uh, about just advertising and advertising related things at my Twitter handle, which is at Megatron, M-E-G-G-A-T-R-O-N. And that's sort of where, you know, my, my industry hat is on and my strategist hat is on. And so I'm often sort of talking about things like this and highlighting things like this on that, um, on that modality. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, well, Megan Averall from the Insight In, just outside of Seattle. I want to talk to you about living outside of Seattle and that career move at some point too. Thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. Best wishes with everything. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Peace.